Well, as you know by now, the key event around which we are focusing our September preaching is the Chicago Harvest Crusade. And if you've been to anything like, say, the Billy, uh, Billy Graham Crusade, you know that the key to the success of something like this is that Christians are mobilized to invite friends, neighbors, work associates, family members to come and be a part of an event like this. Greg Laurie, who's going to be the principal evangelist, will share a very enticing, impactful message about the good news, offer an invitation for people to put their trust in Christ, and then get on that pathway of discipleship. And we get to be that connecting link. Now, all of this is predicated on the mission that Jesus has given us to do. He's called us to be a connecting link, a joyful witness to new life in him. When Jesus went to the Father, he sent his Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit came down upon us, and he said, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus said, I'm putting on your lips and my lips the good news. And as we share the good news about Jesus and what he has done for us, people will be drawn to him what it's all about. Ron Sider imagines this conversation between Jesus and the archangel Michael after Jesus returned triumphantly after his resurrection and ascension. So Gabriel asked Jesus, um, well, how did it go? Did you complete your mission and save the world? And Jesus replied to archangel Michael, well, yes and no. I modeled a godly life for about 30 plus years. I preached to a few thousand Jews in one corner of the Roman Empire. I died for the sins of the world and promised that those who believe in me will have life forever. And I burst from the tomb on the third day to show my circle of 120 frightened followers that my life and story are God's way to save the world. Then I gave them the Holy Spirit to those 120 and left them to finish the task. (laughs) Well, Gabriel is kind of amazed and perplexed by this. He said, you mean your plan to save the world depends upon that ragtag bunch of fishermen, ex-prostitutes, and tax collectors? Jesus replied, yeah, that's right. But what if they fail? What if your plan doesn't work? Jesus said, well, I have no backup plan. I'm counting on them. Now, this is really one of the most astounding truths of the Christian faith. Jesus has entered into partnership with us and entrusted to us to get the word out. Now, I've had some conversations with Jesus about this. Are you sure that this is a good plan? I mean, look at us. We're weak and fallible people. Can we be counted on to get the word out? And there may be no more of a place where we feel weak and fallible than in giving a verbal witness to others in our immediate network of friends and neighbors, work associates, and especially family. I would venture to guess that there is no other area of the Christian life where we feel as ill-prepared than to articulate the meaning of who Jesus Christ is and what he has come for us to others around us. Now, we call this evangelism. Evangelism really means to be heralds of the good news, to be declarers of the good news. But oftentimes, as soon as we mention the word evangelism, Christians get nervous. We start twitching. (laughs) We start evidencing nervous ticks, right? Because we're not secure. 
and our ability to offer a word of witness. I think part of the reason is we have maybe a wrong-headed impression of what a witness is to be. Becky Pippert has written a wonderful book called Out of the Soul Shaker and Into the World. It's all about helping us to witness. But she said that she had a false impression of what it meant to be a witness when she came to faith in Christ as a college student. She said, I thought witnessing meant offending people for Jesus' sake. (laughs) Somewhere she had picked up the image that being a witness meant trapping some unsuspecting victim and then forcing them to listen to her spiel about Jesus. With this image in mind, she says, the result was that I put off witnessing as long as possible. Whenever the guilt became too great to bear, I overpowered the nearest non-Christian with a nonstop running monologue and then dashed away thinking, well, I did it. It's the summer of 2010, and hopefully the guilt won't overcome me again till the winter of 2011. (laughs) And the next potential victim was hoping the same thing. Well, this morning and next week, I want to write us a prescription for anxiety reduction. To be effective witnesses to the life-changing love of Christ means that we need to be non-anxious people. We need to have a non-anxious presence about ourselves. If we're to be effective, the witness has to be authentic and sincere and come from us in a very natural kind of way then there's nothing, I don't think, like anxiety to interrupt that natural flow. So our witness needs to be congruent to who we are so that people don't think of themselves as sort of the target, that we have sort of a canned presentation. We see them as a project that we're trying to to go after. Because if people feel defended against us, they really can't hear the good news very well. It's sort of like receiving one of those darn sales calls that begins something like this. I'm not trying to sell you anything. This is just a friendly courtesy call. Ever gotten one of those? And you're thinking to yourself, sure, right, that worked. You don't want any of my money. (laughs) Well, I think sometimes uh, people see themselves as like that in our crosshairs as we're going after them and that uh, they are projects. So how can we be a, a joyful witness an authentic witness that reduces our anxiety so that life can flow from us. And so this Sunday and next, I want to look at six anxiety-reducing insights that come from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So let's turn our attention to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. The heart of the text will be from verses 35 through 42, but I think we need to get the whole setting to really understand the dynamic of what's going on in this text. And so let's do as is our custom. Let's read this responsibly. I will start with the odd number of verses. You will pick up the even number of verses as we read through John 1, 29 through 42. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Before we get into the three anxiety-reducing insights that I want to share with you this morning, let me just put this text in its, its context. I think if we have this impression, especially in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that uh, the first experience that the disciples had of Jesus was Jesus showing up at the Sea of Galilee, and Peter and Andrew and James and John are fishing. Jesus issues the call, follow me, and sort of with this mesmerizing presence, these automatons walk away following after this cult figure as if Jesus has this mesmerizing effect over them. What John gives us here is an insight into a, a pre-conversion, a pre-call encounter the disciples have with Jesus. Disciples are disciples of John the Baptist. Jesus comes on the scene John says, behold the Lamb of God. Two disciples who are prepared go and follow Jesus. And when they ask about who Jesus is, Jesus says what? Come and see. Come and check me out. Come and see if I am the Messiah. So we know from John's experience here that most of the disciples probably had a pre-call experience where they had a chance to be seekers before they were followers. So that creates, I think, a little bit of the the context uh, for us this morning. With that in mind, let's take a look at the first anxiety-reducing insight that we have from this particular text. First one is reduce self-consciousness and increase God-consciousness. I think nothing heightens our anxiety about being witnesses than we are self-conscious, that we might appear to be sort of like oddballs if we talk, start talking about religious matters, if we think that people are going to look at us in a negative fashion. Now, we should acknowledge from the outset here that we might have some very good reasons to be self-conscious today. Christians in many parts of our society are not very well thought of. David Kinneman, who was a researcher for the Barna Group, kind of the Christian equivalent of the Gallup poll, did some research on how do 16 to to 29-year-olds view born-again Christians or uh, those who are evangelicals. And he found that these young outsiders, as he called them, had a very negative view of what Christianity was all about. Kinneman quotes one of these young outsiders with these words. Most people I meet assume that Christian means very conservative, entrenched in their thinking, anti-gay, anti-choice, angry, violent, illogical empire builders. They want to convert everyone, and they generally cannot live peacefully with anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. 
Kinnaman goes on to say that the strongest impression of Christians by these young outsiders is that Christianity is anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. So with that as the backdrop, we might be self-conscious about how people might view us if we are Christians. In fact, when I meet new acquaintances, I do not tell people that I'm a Christian. I say to people, I'm a follower of Jesus. Why do I do that? Because Christian has become a political term in our culture with all the associations that I have just previously referenced. So how do we break out of self-consciousness and become more God-conscious? Well, I think John the Baptist here is our model. John the Baptist appeared unconcerned about his reputation because his concern was to point to the one that was coming after him, to Jesus himself. Now, this is really rather remarkable if you, if you catch the context. When Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist was the man. He was the one that everybody was going out and listening to. The silence of God had been broken after 400 years, and John the Baptist broke it, and all of Judea, Mark tells us, went out to hear John the Baptist. Now, once adulation starts, it's very hard to give that up, is it not? Once you are the center of attention and you think you are the man, how do you let somebody else step in? But not so with John. Listen to our text this morning. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, They followed Jesus. When John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, the one whose sandals he was unworthy to untie, he let his disciples go. He stepped back in terms of his own ego and said, follow on. This is the one I'd be prepared to focus on. And as John sums it up himself, he must increase and I must decrease. What we witness in John, I think, is an astonishing absence of pride. And pride, you see, is at its root competitive. It's an unnatural act for a sinful heart to exalt someone else's glory and diminish their own. But on the positive side here, John evidenced what we would call humility. And to the extent that we, can, that we do give off a scent of non-humility, the scent of superiority, a judgment, condemnation, moral elitism, Uh, we will have lost the argument from the get-go if we present ourselves in that fashion. There was a uh, telling exchange in the animated TV series, The Simpsons. Homer Simpson quizzes his Christian neighbor when he returns from a weekend away. Homer asks, well, where have you been? The Christian neighbor responds, well, we went away to a Christian camp. We were learning how to be more judgmental. Well, if we give off that sense of superiority, we will not have a chance to share with others. Humility has been defined as not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. You see, we have no moral high ground. We have only the privilege of being forgiven the guilt of our sin and the joy of being found by the accepting love of God. Can I point to anything in myself that says I'm wiser, smarter, more insightful than somebody else, and that's the reason I have come to discover the love of God in my life? No. For reasons unknown to me, I've had this privilege of being accepted by the love of God the Father, and that's the attitude from which I need to share 
the message of the good news. The missionary D.T. Niles, I think, has summed up this sense of humility so well when he says that witness is simply one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. That's all we are. One beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Or as the martyred missionary Jim Elliott put it, witnessing is a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. So John the Baptist helps us, I think, reduce our anxiety by saying, less of me and more of you, God. Let that shine through. Anxiety-reducing insight number two. Conversion is usually the product of many inputs. In our lesson this morning, we meet two disciples of John, one of which we know is Andrew, who was very, very well prepared to follow Christ. They were ripe fruit ready to fall from the tree in the basket of the fruit picker. <laughs> we read in our text, when the two disciples heard him, John, say that Jesus was the Lamb of God, they immediately followed Jesus. They were ready. They were right at that point of conversion and prepared. Now, we don't all went, went into that process. They maybe have been raised in a very God-conscious home. When they met John the Baptist, they, they knew that he was somebody sent from God. We don't know anything about their questions and conundrums along the way. All we know is they were right at the finish line, ready to cross into believing that Jesus was the Messiah. But for most of us, conversion is a process. We don't know what that process was for these two disciples. I've had the opportunity to be holding the fruit basket when the fruit has fallen from the tree with somebody who was just ready to receive Christ in their life. What a joy that is to be at that opportunity. But what they tell me later is, you know, this family member shared their faith with me. I read this particular insight. I had this God moment all over time through a process that brought me to faith in Christ. I just happened to be there at the end when it occurred. And then they oftentimes say something like this. I could have never imagined that 10 years ago that I would be where I am now. Can't imagine that I would even have been interested in having a relationship with Christ 10 years ago. How many of you can say that? 10 years ago, you could not have imagined yourself sitting here in this particular room having an interest. Any of, any of us in this room? Raise your hand if you can. We're all believers for a long time. <laughs> Had a lot more in the first hour. <laughs> Who were there, knew, could not have imagined that they had been in that place. I think the dominant biblical paradigm for conversion is process, not a momentary miraculous conversion like Paul's. Think of the conversion experience like a journey from zero to 100. 100 being that place where you cross the finish line into faith in Christ for the first time. We will be very anxious if we think it's our job to take people from zero to 100, especially in the Becky Pippert model of regurgitating the gospel all in one sitting and hoping somebody steps across the line at the end of our sharing. It usually happens in smaller increments. I had a very off-putting experience early in my Christian walk when I was a student at UCLA. I was trying to learn what it meant to be a witness, to be an evangelist. 
There was a Christian organization on campus that brought in campus workers from all across the country for a one-week blitz on the UCLA campus. And we were offered, as students, the invitation to associate ourselves with a staff worker, follow them around campus during that week, and learn to be witnesses. So I took up them up on that opportunity. One of our appointments was with an Orthodox Jewish young man, complete with yarmulke on his, his head as a commitment, sign of his commitment. And after we had completed a brief religious survey, uh, we asked for the opportunity to take 10 to 15 minutes to share the message of the gospel with this Jewish young man. And once the gospel was presented, there is a question that you ask at the end. The question is, does this make sense to you? And I remember as if it were yesterday the exact words that this Jewish man said. He said, it makes sense to you but it doesn't make sense to me. And at that, he politely dismissed himself. And then came a shocking response from this staff worker to me. He turned to me and said after this young man had left, those Jews are as dumb today as they were 2,000 years ago. Now, being surprised, I'm the neophyte here. Is this how you're supposed to witness? Um, That we didn't pause at that moment and say, let's pray for this young man. Let's pray that what we have done in this moment is one step in the process of leading him to his Messiah. That's what it's all about. He didn't see that process. We may intersect a person's life at the very beginning, middle, or end of the journey. If we see conversion as a process of going from one to a hundred all on us, then that will be a difficult thing to do. But if we can just nudge somebody five or ten points along that line, then we maybe have had an impact. Maybe we're the ones that uh, show somebody that their negative stereotypes of what it means to be a Christian is not accurate. That helps move somebody along the process. A friend of mine by the name of Don invited me and uh, his son to a baseball game. And I think he invited him because... He wanted me to have some influence over his son. At the time, his son was far from the Lord. And after the baseball game, Don came to me and said, you know, my son paid you the highest compliment. I said, what was that? He said, you don't act like a pastor. (laughs) And I thought, well, maybe that was one little nudge he needed because he's walking with the Lord today and maybe I was five points on that scale to help him overcome the barriers that he had in his life. So anxiety comes by putting pressure on ourselves to be the one who has to take people from zero to 100 all in one setting. Even the apostle Paul didn't put that pressure on himself. Writing to the Corinthians, he said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Neither he knew plants nor he knew waters is anything but only God who makes it grow. So may our prayer be that with anyone we encounter, Lord, use me to move that person a little closer to that place where they can cross the line and make their own commitment to Christ. And then anxiety-reducing insight number three. Listen by asking probing questions. Here are our texts again. Two disciples of John follow Jesus. They hear that he's the Lamb of God. And then we read this in verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, 
what do you want? Now, I don't know what the tone of voice was, what do you want? Uh, But I think a better tone comes from the NRSV translation. What are you looking for? What's going on in your heart? What are you seeking in life? You see, I think one of the best evangelistic tools we have at our disposal is to be good listeners who ask good questions. Good questions can be like Trojan horses that get inside the human spirit and do their work. It gets beyond the defenses. When we try to tell people things that they're not ready to hear, they only get defended against us. But if we can be good listeners, if we can be with our work associates and maybe hear about their anxiety about the financial world that we're in today, or we hear from neighbors and friends about the challenges of raising kids in this environment, Those become the bridges that we can walk across to begin to share the good news of Christ in people's lives. I came across a poem, I think, that uh, challenges us Christians to listen well. It's entitled, Cold Water, Hot Coffee. Sometimes that cup of cold water turns out to be a cup of hot coffee, and what we're asked to do is to pour it and to listen. Sometimes we Christians in our enthusiasm think we're asked to save the world when what we're asked to do is to go into the world and tell God's story to people in need of some good news. Anxious activists forget that just listening is an act of compassion. Driven disciples forget that just listening is an act of faithfulness. Guilty givers forget that just listening is an act of stewardship. And since we church people have a tendency to be driven and anxious and guilt-ridden, Perhaps we should read the directions again and pour a cup of hot coffee and listen in his name. Jesus asked, what are you looking for? I think we'll be listening to needs that get us inside the dwelling place of people's hearts and lives. Let me conclude with a uh, personal story, one of the most powerful witnessing seasons in my life. I was living in Southern California at the time. It's the summer of 2001. My wife and I live on a block, Roses Road, about 30 houses, and we've gotten to know the people pretty well on that road because we do block parties and uh, neighborhood watch gatherings. And neighbor and I had a conviction that we wanted to start an outreach Bible study on our block simply share about who the person of Jesus is in a very simple way. So we had selected a curriculum from Luke, and we were going to make these invitations to the people in our neighborhood to to join us. And then an event occurred that all got all of our attention, September 11th, 2001. And you might recall that the immediate impact of the event sent shudders through our emotions. We were all in a state of shock and daze. We were trying to absorb the horror of the images that we saw on the screen. What did this kind of evil mean for the world that we lived in? And again, you might recall that at the end of that week, President Bush issued a day of prayer and remembrance at that Friday evening. Churches held memorial services and And uh, so did communities offer the similar kinds of things. But Lily and I were convinced that many people would not know where to go and what to do. So we decided to invite our neighbors into our home. I wrote up a letter. 
I went around to the 30 mailboxes and dropped that letter in and invited people to come at 7 o'clock on Friday night. If you have no other place to go and you need a place to process your feelings about what's taking place this week, come to our house. Well, we had no idea how many people to expect. We prepared for about seven or eight that might show up. People kept coming and coming that night. We ended up with 24 adults at our house and about 10 children. We had to make two circles of chairs of 12 each to get the adults inside of our living space. And I simply asked them, share your feelings. What's going on? One of the women that came that night had been in Boston earlier in the week. She had scheduled to be on one of those planes on Tuesday morning that went into the Twin Towers. She had changed her reservation to Monday night because she had a two-year-old daughter and she came home on Monday evening before the whole event occurred. You can imagine the emotions in the room hearing that story. Her husband was still in Boston uh, because flights were not allowed to occur. Well, after that remarkable evening, we issued this invitation to come to this Bible study we wanted to do. And admittedly, only a small subset of those who came that night participated. But one of them was a woman by the name of Elena. Elena was a young mother who lived right across the street from us with three young children. And we found out why she came to our Bible study. She said, I'm looking for answers for why my 20-year-old sister committed suicide. I need to understand that. And so we explored who Jesus was and what he came to do for us. And that became the bridge to her heart to help her understand what it was to have a relationship with God. Jesus has called us to be bridge people. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We've been given a message to share that breaks down the strongholds of people's hearts and woos them into a relationship with God so that he can have a relationship with themself. If we can reduce the anxiety so that we can become authentic, non-anxious witnesses, then the joy of Jesus can just flow from us to people's lives. Let me offer one invitation. At the 8.30 hour this morning, we started a class that Eric Campfield is teaching called Good News Made Simple to Share. If you're struggling with how to be an effective witness, that's what that class is all about. You can pick that up next week at 8.30 in, in room Uh, 262. This morning we've looked at the first of three anxiety-reducing insights that assist us in being joyful witnesses to Christ. If we increase God-consciousness and reduce self-consciousness, if we see conversion as a process in which we are only one part, if we listen carefully to the inner rumblings of people's hearts, then we will have opportunities to point people to the new life in Christ. And I tell you, there is no greater privilege than to be a vehicle that God uses to connect another person to him. I pray for all of us that we have that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to be able to offer a verbal witness to you but we need to do it in the context of love and care without any sense of superiority, with that sense that you're going to use us as one part of a process to bring somebody to you, that you would make us wonderful listeners 
who can learn to hear hearts. We so need to be listened to today, Lord, and may we be those ears that people have so that we can see that place where we can walk across uh, into that human need to share your good news with them. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.